Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Welcome to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Sim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Uh, our guest in this episode is a man of many talents, some of them a little dubious perhaps. He's a published author... <laughs> He's a prolific poet. Uh, he's a sometime marketing prof- professional. He's a sports commentator, uh, an entertainer, and without question, uh, his biggest claim to fame, representing Australia on the world stage, which was to fulfil a dream that he had carried and had burning inside of him since he was a young lad. Ideally, it would have been in a Wallabies jumper, but that wasn't to be. Instead, uh, it was in the full contact pursuit of Sudoku. Yes, uh, Sudoku, that frustrating uh, nine by nine grid that some people like to uh, do in the newspaper uh, every day. Sometimes it takes them minutes, sometimes it takes them hours, sometimes they don't complete it at all. But he is no stranger to the airways of 6PR. Let's say hello and welcome uh, to the one and only Mick Collis. Hello, Mick. Go, Tim. Nice to see you. Have you ever been called inspiring? Never. <laughs> well, it's a good fit for you then <laughs> to be on yeah. Inspiring Stories. So I told my wife I was coming in to do this, and she went, are you sure it's you? <laughs> said, yeah, thanks for your support. So, no, never been inspiring, but happy to try and be inspiring. For Look, a, for I've got to say, though, this, I mean, it, inspiring can take on many forms, though, right? So, yes. I mean, your quest to represent your country, that's an inspiring tale with a humorous twist. Yeah, um, it's funny because I'm, I'm, well, was on the speaking circuit uh, well, I still am, but just I don't travel as much as I used to. And I've told it a couple of times. And for me, it's just uh, 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 it's a story of something I wanted to do, which was play for Australia. And so I did that, picked myself and my mates, and we went away and did it and came back home. And, and when I tell that story, the, the amount of people that come up and tell me how inspiring the story is, it really spins me out. Because Seriously? Because that, that, that wasn't my intent to... Like, you know, some people, they want to, you know, do some travel around Australia to inspire others, or they want to climb a mountain to inspire others. I just did that because I wanted. That was a purely selfish thing I wanted to do. <laughs> and but you know, there's. I mean, there's some nice messages in there about you know, being persistent and not giving up and not worrying about failure and all that sort of stuff, which the corporates like. But yeah, for people to come up and say that they're really inspired by it, it makes me sit back and it's a really nice thing to hear because I said <laughs> yeah. it wasn't an intent, but if, if that's what people take, I'll, I'll take it. Is it because they took it seriously? They they missed the humour in what you no, were No, no, it's funny because there was, there was one guy came up to me, I spoke at a uh, hardware function in Canberra and a young kid came up to me afterwards and he said, thanks for telling that story. He always wanted to be an actor. He said, I don't know anyone that's an actor, but after hearing your story... I want to go and try and be an actor. And I thought wow. that was great. And another bloke said his nephew was in, in jail and he wanted to buy the book because he wanted to let this kid know that you've just got to keep plugging away and, and you know, you're going to have some bad times, but you've got to get over those bad times and keep, you know, looking for the bright side. So it was really nice to have people 
take that out of what what is essentially a silly story and and to find this real depth and, and inspiration yeah. is very it's really humbling for me to mm. have people take that out you know it would have been nice if I'd have set out to actually be inspiring but <laughs> I didn't realize I was but it, yeah so that, yeah. that so it's funny it's a funny thing to say and yet you obviously are intrigued by inspiring stories yourself because you've written books about people who've done inspiring things uh, we'll talk about your books perhaps a little bit later but just for now you know your most recent publication looks at uh, some of Australia's yeah. toughest athletes who are inspiring in their own right, aren't and they? And I, th- I think I think we all like stories. Yeah, and um, and and mine mine is a story, and and it's a story people like, which is great. And I, I like hearing other people's stories. I think all the books that I read—not that I'm a prolific reader by any means—but generally I'll read biographies or autobiographies or, or true things because I, I like stories. So yeah, so yeah, and that was the reason that that book came about because um, I like stories, and I thought mm. way of finding some out is just to write some. And there's some bloody good stories out there. Yeah. That need telling. Absolutely. Let's focus on your story for the moment, though. Now, when you say the Sudoku Championships, Hmm. I mean, this is not a a made-up thing in itself, though, is it? The World Championships of Sudoku. Yeah. It's real, right? Yeah, there is a a real... So we went to the third and... 2008. 2008. So the second one had 114 competitors from 32 different nations. We we're at the third one, and we had eighty-nine competitors from from thirty different nations. So it, it's a and there's a there's an um, entity called the World Puzzle Federation, and that's the governing <laughs> body for puzzling. So that's an official world governing body for puzzling, and the World yep. Sudoku Championships slot in under that World Puzzle Federation. I guess it's like the ICC is the governing body for cricket, and you've got the World T Twenty Championships is one thing that is under the ICC. I assume it's under the ICC. But yeah. That's sort of set up. So some people do take it extremely Abs- seriously. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about the build-up for you personally and for your teammates. I'm, I'm trying to get through this without finding it's a very serious story. <laughs> it's, a, it's an extremely <laughs> serious story. The guts, the t- determination, yeah. the vision it took for you to get there. Okay, so you've had this dream as a kid. Mm. You really wanted to wear the green and gold, call yourself a representative of Australia yep. on the world stage mm. in something. Yep. As I mentioned, ideally it might have been rugby. Yeah, and but that wasn't to be. So when did Sudoku suddenly become the thing that you wanted to represent Australia for? It was on a plane to Brisbane to watch a Bledisloe Cup match. Yep, in would have been probably two thousand and seven. Okay, and that was when. So yeah, so my my whole life, like a lot of kids, I wanted to play for Australia. So I I played like played cricket. I played rugby league, rugby union. I tried swimming, surf, life saving, lawn bowls. I tried a truckload of things, and I just was never good enough because growing up, I, I just always thought anyone representing Australia, for some reason, in my head, they they sat at the top of the pyramid. Mm. Just for me as a young kid, I remember I went out to the cricket ground one day because I grew up in Sydney and I watched um, Australia play a test match and, and I loved Dougie Walters, the batsman, and I remember running onto the SCG after a, a test when you were allowed to run on without mm. being fined five grand and, and Dougie was walking off and I, and I pat Doug Walters on the back as he was walking off. And that was one of the great moments in my life to yeah. think I'd actually I'd touched this guy who's playing for Australia. And, like, you know, because you'd see these people walk out onto the middle of, of you know, the SCG and you've got, you know, 40,000 people just cheering this guy walking out to, to play cricket for your country. And all, there was that whole romantic side of of wanting to wanting to be in that guy's shoes. And then I started um, playing rugby. I did okay in rugby, made some junior rep stuff, and I used to go and watch the Wallabies play and... 
And I, I always, and I mean, John Eels, the great captain, always says when he's singing the anthem when he was playing, he'd, he'd pick out someone in the audience wearing a wallaby beanie or scarf, and he'd sing the anthem to them because he, he'd realised how much they would love to be in his shoes. And and that was, like that was me. I reckon he must have sung that to me every time because yeah. I, I just would have loved to have, to been out there and and to be playing for your country. I don't know what well, I don't know what it was or why it was, but it was this deep seated, just wanting to experience that joy of. I guess in the the adulation that comes with it as well. Yep. And I I was lucky enough to had some good mates of mine that that went on and, and played for the Wallabies. And I remember I lived with a guy called Marty Roebuck who went on to play for the Wallabies and won a World Cup in 1991. And um, we were at, we just went to the service station to get some petrol one day in the car. We we're just two mates and and he's got out and and a guy that none of us knew walked up and said, "Oh, g'day, Marty. You know, great game on the weekend." And I thought, how cool would that be? Just have complete yeah. strangers coming up to you and being positive about what you did because you were playing rugby for your country. Like, there was no downside in my mm-hmm. mind at all. So that was something I really wanted to do. And, and so me and Marty lived together for three or four years when he moved down from the country in New South Wales. And, and we that was back in the days when training was Tuesday, Thursday, and you played on Saturday. So it was purely amateur, amateur times. So we, we were ahead of, our, ahead of the time, and we trained every single day together, and we played he went on to play for the Wallabies and I was playing fourth grade. So I had all the desire in the world, <laughs> but I just didn't have the ability. And that was the frustrating thing for me that yeah. I didn't just sit in the couch and think I want to play for Australia. Like I, I trained bloody hard for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was at Eastwood and I was the, the cult of the year and the guy that was runner-up was a guy called Dick Harry and Dick Harry went on to play 37 test matches for Australia and I was never heard from again. So I I had some ability as a kid, but I just was never big enough and never strong enough and, you know, numerous reasons why I didn't make it. But that desire always stayed there. So I ended up going up to Brisbane to watch a Bledisloe Cup game when I was 42 and Skiffo, the guy that came with me, who I'd played rugby with here in Perth, he pulled out a book of Sudoku puzzles, which I'd never even seen before. And him pulling out that book and asked him what it was, and I'd had just the right number of beers, and I just said we should form our own, or hold our own world championships, Sloku championships, and then we could pick ourselves in the Australian team. We were going to hold it at our rugby club. <laughs> Pommy mates were going to play for England, Kiwis for New Zealand. And then when I got back home and I Googled it, and actually there was one, which was the one that had 114 people, so it's a lot bigger than the one we were going to hold. And then I just thought I've, I've come too far, so I'm, I just set about trying to find out how you make that, how do you get to pick to play in that official world championships. And to cut a long story short, you need to be selected and have that selection ratified by your country's member of that World Puzzle Federation. And Australia didn't have a member, so I applied to become the member. I got accepted, so then it became my job to actually so pick who, Australian so who accepted you? Some mob in Europe, like <laughs> the World Puzzle Federation. That was the most creative work I've ever done was my application for the World Puzzle Federation. I spoke all about how I was going to promote the game and how I was going to do all sorts of wonderful things for the game in Australia. And so they've. Um, I think they were happy to try and spread their net, and so they said, "Yep, you're um, you're the new, you're the Australian member of the World Puzzle Federation." So I was meant to hold Australian and state and Australian championships, and then pick an Australian team and send them to the World Championships. But amazing, that all got too hard. So I, yeah, I just picked myself and three mates, and off, <laughs> off we went. I mean, it's brilliant. Yeah, it was, I mean, it sounds like a made-up story, but we know that it does sound like a made-up story. In fact, completely true. Yeah, and yeah, and the beers have worn off by this point, of course. Exactly. So. Yeah, and I don't, again, I don't. We've all had things where you have a couple of beers and you think, oh, that'd be a great idea, and then you wake up the next day and you don't do anything about it. But for yeah. some reason, this was in your head. That was in my head, yeah. and I just I didn't let it go. And and um, <laughs> and even even when I first applied, they've emailed me back and said, no, there's already an Australian application. 
So I thought I'd missed out. Really? And, yeah. And then I said, but look, I'm actually in, in Western Australia. So it's like um, Africa and South Africa. I said, I'm Western Australia. Can, can I be the Western Australian one? They said, Well, that no. was prophetic, wasn't yeah. it? Because we kind <laughs> yeah. of are now. <laughs> yeah. And they said, no, Australia's one thing. And I said, oh, okay. So I let it go. And then they've emailed me back and said that the other people have pulled out. And if you still want to apply, you can. So I've gone, yep. So then I applied and... And, and I became it, so I was the sole selector and, and I was the main man for the World Puzzle Federation, which was Genius. ridiculous, but but I was it. And that's what, when we, when we got to India and we were walking around and it wasn't like we were there, you know, tagged onto the World Championships, there was an Australian team and then we've turned up and said, no, we're the Australian team. We were all walking around and we've kind of looked at each other in our Australian playing kit and just sort of said, you know, we're, we're actually, we we're, were it. We were the Australian team at the World Championships and our entire nation's hopes were riding on our four shoulders. And it was... Um, what a burden. It was a real burden. It was a real... And it, again, it was this beautiful thing to think that finally I'm I'm that guy that I used to look You're at John as a Eels. kid. I'm John Eels and yeah. I, I am the Australian team. Amazing. I'm, you know, I'm John Eels is now wanting me to do well because I'm I'm the one representing yep. Australia. You're so on the was, green and gold. It was your great. turn. Your it was turn. My turn. It was my turn. And people listening right now will be dying to know how you went, but we'll leave that until after we take a break. There's no Cinderella story there, Tim. But yeah, <laughs> given that you still to that point hadn't actually completed a single I, puzzle, no, I, d- I did my first one on the plane <laughs> as we taxied oh, into Singapore Airport. Did you finish it? Uh, did I, you it master took me a couple or did of you goes. just have a crack? I had a, I stuffed up the first two in the in-flight magazine, <laughs> but then Skiffo had his book, so he showed me how to do it. So I got one out. I think I finished it as we were taxiing into Singapore Airport on the way to the world titles. Brilliant. So, yeah. You're on a roll. Yeah. All right. Let's take a break. After that, the World Championships, how did they go? This is Inspiring Stories. Mick Collis is our special guest. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Everyone has a story to tell. This one is brought to you by Barra and O'Day. And what a story. It sounds like a tall tale, but it is in fact completely true. The extraordinary story of one man's quest to represent his own country uh, and finding a place to do that on the stage uh, in India at the World Sudoku Championships of 2008. Mm. Uh, Mick, we haven't quite got there yet. I've still got chills thinking about it. I mean, obviously you had this story, you know, under the influence of a couple of couple of beverages. Mm. Sobriety, though, has done nothing to shake your enthusiasm. No, not at all. Um, to, to make it. Mm. Um, at what point did you actually take this on as a, as a real quest and go, you know, this is actually real. I've got to see this through. I'm going to get myself and my mates there. We're going to do this right. I think it all it all came down to when... So once I got accepted... Yeah. Um, by the World Puzzle Federation. By the World Puzzle Federation, to be <laughs> yeah. the Australian member of the World Puzzle Federation. So I'm, I call it the Andrew Dimitri of Australian Sudoku. I was, I was the Look, head that, I don't think that's an understatement. No, no, not at all. I'm probably underselling it. Yeah. And and so I had this power. Or an overstatement. I, I had this, the power to pick to pick the team. Yeah. And and initially, I I thought I'd do it properly. I I was going to uh, run a like an Australian championships, which well, I, that, didn't, I didn't. That, know that's how, only fair. How to do that initially, but they sent me this long email about how to do that. Yeah. So I thought that I would run that, but I thought if I run that, because I'd never played the game, <laughs> I'm not going to be picked in the team. No. Because I, Virtually I, zero chance. Zero chance. So I thought, yeah. well, I, I don't want to expel all this effort and me get nothing out of it. 
Mm. So that's where I was going to give it to, I was just not going to do anything with it. But then I emailed a mate of mine, Sandy Sutherland, who I'd played rugby with in, um, at, here in, at university for a long time in Perth. And he was currently living in Switzerland. And he was the sort of bloke that if you're having a barbecue, he'd come back for it. Like he was just that kind of guy, really good, fun fella. So I've, I emailed him and I said, Sandy, would you be interested in representing Australia in Sudoku and travelling to India for the World Sudoku Championships? And then he's emailed me back and he said, I don't know what Sudoku is, but I'm sure it's nothing I can't learn on the day. I'm in. So I've thought, okay, great. And then he's emailed me straight back and said, let me clarify that. I'm in if it's with you, me, his brother Hamish, and Skiffo. And that was the same Skiffo that was on the plane to, with me to Brisbane right. those months ago. Yep. And that's when the penny dropped and it became clear that all of a sudden the planets had aligned. I needed to pick four people. Sandy's just said, Sandy, me, Hamish and Skiffo, all mates, all played rugby what together. A team. And I thought, bang, that was it. So once he, once he did that, and I just thought, that's the dream team. I couldn't have picked a better <laughs> team. That's when it just we just went nuts with the, the whole these you're uniforms. All, all and, similarly rubbish at Sudoku. Absolutely. Well, only the yeah. only guy who'd ever played was Skiffo, so he yep. became captain of the Australian team, which was fair enough. Obvious. And then I picked myself as vice captain because that was the as high as I could probably legally justify <laughs> picking myself because I hadn't played before. And yes, yeah, Sandy and, and Hamish hadn't played either. So once once we'd kind of picked that team, and then we we ended up we went down to the OBH in Cot because we wanted we thought. You've it, got to have a tournament, right? Well, yeah, and we kind thought, of. we want to make it official. We want to. We don't just want to say we picked ourselves. We want to say we've had an Australian Championships and we were we were we were picked. So we went to the ABH for the Australian Championships, and only four of us turned up. So we knew we were a fair chance of, of being picked in the top four to make the Australian team. And and I I remember standing up in the pub and um, we just had some beers and some chips. We didn't do any any puzzles, and I've pulled a bit of paper out of my pocket and I've stood up in the pub and I've said the team to represent Australia of the World Sudoku Championships in Goa, India, is. Because I remember my wife was in the Australian women's water polo team for nine years. And I remember so she's got genuine pedigree. She can play, yep. yeah. And there was a, a um, an Australian Championships at, at Challenge Stadium or HBF, whatever it's called now. And I remember at the end of that National Championships, they picked the Australian team. And her surname was Wheelock, so she was a W. So she had to wait right yep. to the end to mm-hmm. see if she was in this squad of 13 or whatever they picked. And I remember standing next to her poolside and just feeling the the nerves of all these girls. There was probably, what, 60 girls waiting around to see if they'd made the, the 13th to play for Australia. And they went through all the, the names and camped through the season Ds. And, and I'm just standing next to And I think I, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be standing there waiting to hear your name called out to make an Australian team. And they finally got to Wheelock and called out, you know, Sharon Wheelock. And, and I thought, you know, damn it, how good would that be to just to hear your name called out? So I always wanted to experience that. So... At our national championships, I wanted to be the. I wanted to hear my name called out, so I've stood up, read out the bit of paper, and as I've said now, the to team to represent Australia is, and I'm just thinking, now, please pick me, please pick me, please pick me, because I was just reliving that moment with Sharon. And I've gone, you know, Mark Skivington, Hamish Sutherland, Sandy Sutherland, and I've I've done the maths in my head. Three have been named. There's one spot left. I'm thinking, you know, God, what's going to happen? And then I've called, you know, Mick Collis. That was, just, that was it. That yeah. was just such a what a buzz. I'd I'd to experience that <laughs> that I've heard so many people talking about that waiting to hear their name called out, and to have experienced hearing your name called out to to play for Australia, 
was just um, one of the great moments of my life. Which, which I hope Sharon was there to witness. She wasn't there, no. She, she wasn't, wasn't there. there. No, she has had and, shown very little interest in I, my I must whole say, adventure for the whole time. And for someone who's got genuine sporting ability mm. and has represented their country yeah. in, the, in the very competitive sport of water polo, yeah. has she at any point taken your quest seriously? Not no. She's 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 <laughs> sick of hearing about it, yeah. and um, I, and I think too. I felt a bit sorry for her because like water polo is a tough tough sport, and Brutal. they they train very hard for no recognition whatsoever. Yeah, and, and once word got out that that we picked ourselves in the Australian Sudoku team. <laughs> Like, we were on Today Tonight, we were on the Today Is Show, right? we were on half a dozen different radio stations, there were stories in the paper about us, and, <laughs> and I just felt almost sorry for her because <laughs> she got nothing, and, and the whole media world wanted to talk about the Australian Sudoku team all of a sudden, so she, she took it in, you know, good spirit, and she was happy because she knew that I'd, <laughs> I'd worked hard and actually wanted to try and play for Australia at something, so she was happy that I'd done it, but showed very little interest in, in anything yeah. apart from that. <laughs> All right, so you've picked yourselves. Shock horror, you're on the team. Yeah. Not only on the team, but also the vice-captain. Vice-captain, yeah, because she was vice-captain, so I wanted to... <laughs> yeah, at least match her. Yeah. Not surpassed. <laughs> no, but, I was happy yeah, to just, just... get to the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, the build-up then, did you actually think, okay, maybe we should you know, have a crack at one of these Sudoku pu- not, puzzles? Not or, initially. Or was that not a prerequisite no, for because, your because preparation? My, my, whole, my whole dream was to be picked to play for Australia and yeah. and I'd, I'd done that so that was Job that done. was that was the goal and it was only <laughs> when I was heading across to India that I'm kind of sitting on the plane and I, and I remember um, I broke into a bit of a cold sweat and, and Skiffo was sitting next to me and he said mate what's wrong and I said you know I'm on my way to India to represent Australia at the World Sudoku Championships and he's I remember he put his hand on my shoulder and he said mate I know and you should be very proud and I said I am but I, I don't know how to play Sudoku so that's when <laughs> We went through the the two in the puzzle, and I got that wrong. And my my greatest fear was that I would embarrass Australia because I I didn't want to let Australia down. Here I'd I'd had this dream about, and I'd seen all these you know Doug Walters and you know John Eels, these guys that did it so well, and I didn't want to be the guy that made a mockery of of wearing the green and gold. So that's that was when it really hit me that I need to actually know what I'm doing. So I I worked out how to do that one puzzle, and then I tapered from there until the championship started because I, I knew kind of what I had to do. Yeah. And just in keeping with, you know, the, the level of seriousness that you guys applied uh, to this championships mm. in 2008, I uh, understand there were all sorts of outfits. I have, in yeah. fact, seen you in the green and gold. Lots of Beautifully outfits. embroidered blazer. It's it's very Wallabies-esque. In yeah, its, yeah. So we modelled it on the, on the 1948 Australian Olympic blazer was right. what we modelled it on. Because I don't like all the classic. new... The new Australian Olympic uniforms, I think, are horrible because they they, there's blues and greys and whites, and I just think that that classic green with the little bit of gold piping is just the classic Australian oh, blazer. Yes, yeah. so that's what we wanted. So we ended up we had, and I thought, you know, you watch the um, like when Marty made the Wallabies, no one really cared, or any junior rep teams I made, no one cared where you were going. They said, you know, what kit did you get? It was all about the kit, and yeah. the Wallabies come back with all these bags of kit. And you see the cricketers walk through the airport with those just massive coffins of just gear, just so much gear. So we thought... Sandpaper you know, occasionally. We're, yeah. we're going. <laughs> we want we want the gear. We can pick the gear, so let's pick the gear. So we ended up with... Yeah, we had five uniforms. So we had uh, we had a polo shirt and walk shorts, 
was the nut was the number twos <laughs> and, and 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 where were you going to wear those? So so the, so the number ones was the blazer, the tie. That was the official official. Yep. That was travel days and official functions. Yeah. Then the polo shirt and walk shorts, which were the number twos, were just the casual walking around the hotel. Um, the threes was the t-shirt and the gym short, which was more a bit more casual than the twos for then training. The, the f- more more of a training outfit. Yeah. Then the fours was the singlet and the board shorts for down at the beach and recreation by the pool. <laughs> and then the fives was the green and gold Australian playing kit. And we had a pair of green and gold Australian thongs, two Australian caps with a bottle opener in the peak and a stubby holder. <laughs> so we had the the entire strip of of kit to wear, and it was great. So that morning of you could have sold merchandise. Well, we, well, we're hoping there's there's a movie. Um, we hopefully will come out, and if yeah. that does come out, we will certainly have a merchandise line of. I mean, you must of Sudoku gear that yeah. people can buy. Who would play you? Well, they've put together a wish list of actors, and they want either Eric Banner is the number one choice, or um, or Hugh Jackman. But I think Eric Banner would be better because yeah. I think he's well, got more of that knockabout Aussie yeah, yeah, yeah. about and it. His character in yeah. um, in the castle, I just thought was fantastic. Just yeah. a little bit simple, yeah, but um, heart of gold, and you know. Um, before we wrap up the extraordinary events of 2008 and before we get to the result Mm -hmm. just paint a picture for us because obviously you know you guys are there sort of in a semi-serious way but I imagine we're we're, we're completely serious okay no, I'll take your word no 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 and I'll get to it as I explain the next part of the the answer paint a picture for us like at the world championships of Sudoku Mm. like I'm assuming people go there very much focused on winning with with, you know it's almost their superpower doing, doing Sudoku correct they are guns. Yes. At just seeing the numbers. Yep. You know, it's almost a sixth sense. Yeah. You know, they're genius. Yeah. It's Sudoku. Absolutely. It's their thing. What, what's the arena like where you go to? Is it in a big hall? Yeah. You know, do you all sit down together? Are you on a timer? Like, so our, what is it like? Our World Championships was held at the great, in the Great Hall at the Holiday Inn in Goa, <laughs> which was basically the big, the big function room. Yeah. And it, for me, it was like my, I did the HSC in, um, in Sydney, so your final school exams, where there's tables of two, and so there would have been 45 tables of two set up in this room, and and we've walked in and we've sat next to each other, and the officials have come and said, "Oh, look, you can't sit next to each other because they think you might cheat." And we thought, "Well, <laughs> we're actually better off sitting next to someone else because yeah. there's no way that I would cheat off one of us because none of us know what we're doing." So not that we were going to cheat anyway, because we were there for Australia, and we don't cheat. We that we wouldn't do that. So there, yeah. So everyone sits next to each other, and then you get given your puzzle booklet. And in our one, we had seven rounds of forty-five minutes, and each round had twelve puzzles. So it was eighty-four puzzles throughout the day. You had to try and do. So it was basically seven hours of puzzling. It was ex- mentally exhausting. <laughs> so we sit there with our puzzle booklets face down, and then the bloke, uh, the boss of the World Puzzle Federation, comes out, makes his speech. And then he said, you may start, and the, and the clock starts. And then you, everyone turns over their puzzle booklet, and you start puzzling. And that's that's where my world fell apart, because <laughs> the first one I saw, I'd, I'd, I, I only thought there were puzzles that you see in the paper. I thought that was the only variation they had. But unbeknownst to me, there's all these different variants of Sudoku. And the first one, I had had, had X's and V's, and I didn't know what to do with that. Then the next one was one called a killer that it didn't have any big numbers. It just had little numbers that you meant to add up the little boxes to make the the little numbers, but it still all had, had to be one to nine. So, again, that, and that's when I – that was rock bottom for me because that's where I thought I was going to let Australia down because yeah. I – and, I honestly, Only at that moment. Only at that moment. Because <laughs> up until then, I thought if there was one that I knew what I could do, I could at least try and knuckle down and do it. And that's when I turned to page three 
And I found one, which is called the classic, which is the one that is in the paper every yeah. day. Yeah. So I sat down and and so we had 45 minutes to try and do 12 puzzles. I, I finished that puzzle and I did that in 41 minutes. But I'd finished a puzzle for Australia and I'd scored five points for Australia. And I, when I tell my story, so I played rugby with a guy called John Wellborn and John was Western Australia's first homegrown wallaby. Yeah. And John played six games for Australia and didn't score any points. And here I was, game one, and already five points on the board for my country. So that was for me. And I remember I had Hamish sitting next to me, and we'd played a lot of rugby together, and we won some very important games together. But at the end of that 45, I've looked at him, and he said to me, how did you go? And I've done the fist pump and said, yep, I got one. And I said, how did you go? And he did the fist pump and said, I got one. And that was the that was one of the most satisfying moments, like the thrill that we got out of actually finishing the pump. We were out of our depth, but that, to complete... Uh, you know, a, a puzzle at a at a world championship in the pressure cooker environment, when I didn't know what I was doing, that was that was my Everest moment. Yeah. Getting that that one puzzle. That sounds. Out. I'm feeling it. I've got goosebumps. And then there was three. There was a guy called Thomas Snyder who ended up being the world champion. He went back to back world champion. He did that same <laughs> puzzle I did in 41 minutes. He did that in two minutes 26. And out of three of the rounds of 45 minutes, he finished all 12 puzzles in in that 45-minute period. And I, I was watching him, and he just put his... Pen, about 43 minutes, he just put his pencil down, sat back, just folded his arms, and just watched everyone else. Wow. He was, he was just... Um, he was amazing. So I had... I, out of the 84... Did he pass his drug test afterwards? Though? Yeah, I don't know. And yeah. it's funny, like, those guys, they... For them... And, and our whole reason for going was we had sport as our reference, and it was all about playing for Australia, whereas he went across... Those guys just go as individuals. And he said he liked about us. He said he was one of four guys from America, but we were one Australian team. So that that was our legacy. They liked that. And and just they a lot of those guys, they don't really care about winning. They they actually want to invent a puzzle that gets used at a world championship. That is their that's right. their holy grail. Like it's okay. a different a different level of thinking. Well, so we all have our roles to play. Yeah. And, yeah. and that was theirs. <laughs> but out of the seven rounds, I had I did one puzzle in in each of three rounds, and there was four rounds where I, I didn't do any puzzles, so I finished. I finished three out of the eighty-four puzzles over a seven-hour period. It's <laughs> a long seven hours, mate. And it was. And we come out after forty-five minutes. Our brains were just fried, and we look across at the other guys. You know, on the footy, they've got the guys on the um, sideline on the exercise bikes. Yeah. Thomas Snyder would go out, and he would do find a word in really? between in between the sticky minute brain to keep the brain ticking. ticking. Wow. Phenomenal. What a machine. Phenomenal. Yeah, he was great. Okay. Let's, we've got to go to a break in a minute, but let's just kill the suspense. How did you go? So, how, what will the leaderboard show? Well, out Mick of the, Collis, 2008 World Championships. Out of the 89 individuals, I was 89th, quite comfortably. Again, look, we all have our roles to play. Yeah, but that's, so, so I even, say that's your, even your teammates. But that's, yeah. that's 89th in the world. And aren't many people with a world ranking of 89. So the other guys, so Hamish ended up being 88th, Sandy was 87th, and Skiffo in one of the great captain's knocks, 83rd place. Wow. Yeah, which I think he beat a couple of Bangladeshis and uh, (laughs) someone else who I think actually pulled out a Someone else who maybe shouldn't have been there. (laughs) Withdrew, I think, midway through. There you go. What a story. What a story. Oh, yeah, it's quite bizarre. You're a man of many stories, though, Mick, and we're going to hear some more right after we take a break. This is Inspiring Stories. Mick Collis is our special guest. We'll be back with more of his story right after this. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. 
You're listening to inspiring stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. We are hearing the almost unbelievable story of one man's quest to represent his country. Uh, we have uh, partially told this story. Mick Collis uh, and a few of his mates making it to the world stage of Sudoku in India in 2008. Uh, Mick, it started out as, as, a, as a bit of a joke, as a bit of a thought bubble. You made it there, 2008, unfortunately. Look, 80 nights in the world, as you say, yeah, I'd take not to be sneezed at. Yep. There's not many people that can say genuinely they're the 80 nights exactly. ranked yeah. person in the world at anything. That's right. But you've done it. I've done it. You've yeah. done it. Uh, did your affiliation with the, can I call it a sport? Of Definitely a sport. Did yeah. it, did it finish there or has it continued? Um, so, yeah, so the year after us, because once when I came back and the book came out, I had all these people inundating me wanting to know when's the next Australian team, how do they make it, when's the next Australian champion? People who are actually who could actually play. Serious about it. Yeah. And I had no interest in, in that because, again, if I held a championship, <laughs> I was going to make the team. Yeah. And one lady, she at the US Nationals, she was an Australian lady living in the US, and she'd competed at the US Nationals and finished third. And the US Nationals get um, 1,000 people turn up and first prize is 10 grand and a spot on the US team. Wow. She'd finished third and but couldn't make the US team because she was Australian. And she sent me this CV of all the Sudoku competitions she'd been in saying, how do I make the Australian team? And I've emailed her back and said, look, I'll put it to the board. And then I've emailed her back and said, yes, you're in. So I bought her a T-shirt and she went to Philadelphia. And then the next year was in Hungary. I had a mailing list of about 80 people. And I've done a blanket email. I said, who wants to go? I had three people say, yep, they'd go. One guy said, can I take my girlfriend? I said, yep, there's your team of four. So I bought them a T-shirt. And then I resigned then. And they from, went. They went they, to they Hungary. Went. How'd they go? Uh, not as well as us because not as many people <laughs> wanted to go to India. So that's why we only had 89 people, whereas I think Hungary had about 130. Yeah. And they finished lower than 89th. So yeah, we, right. I think we maintain the highest ranking of Sudoku <laughs> players, which is fantastic. So once all that got too hard for me, I, I withdrew from the World Puzzle Federation and they were actually very sad to see me go, they said. <laughs> and then we formed a breakaway league because I enjoyed the power of picking an Australian team. So I formed a World Sudoku League, the Breakaway Professional League, and I'm the global CEO of the World Sudoku League and a fellow called John Eels is the president and another guy called Phil Kearns is the global head of HR. So, we so get, this is like Super League style. That, you not know, basically Super League, the yeah. breakaway. Or the Kerry the, Packard. The NRL, or the, yeah, yeah, World Series cricket. Yeah. So we get yeah. together once Just a year. Just put it in context. Once a year <laughs> when, when Sudoku or when we can travel around and we'll pick a rugby test somewhere in Australia. Yeah. 25 guys from all around the country will get together and we will play a state of origin style Australian Sudoku championship. So everyone's got their state blazers on. And we'll play a 40-minute championships and the top four will pick as an Australian team. They each get an honour cap that I get made from this little bloke in Pakistan that I found. And then we we play a Sudoku test match against whatever the touring rugby team is. The ex-players that are out on tours, we get them together and then they play for their country. They become dual internationals and we have a, um, a big championship, a big dinner, lots of pomp and ceremony, speeches and, um, and so the Sudoku, it does continue to this day. Yeah. But we've been held up the last two years but we're hoping this year that we can get back on and um, and get it back up again because everyone misses it. It's well, a, it's a, um, that it's, would be magnificent. Yeah, it's a nice thing to, to a, do. And your own uh, recognition in Australia, uh, I understand, it's time yeah, well, for you to achieve I, the ultimate status. I think so. So I, I, when I got back from India, I set up a, as the Australian member of the World Puzzle Federation, I set up the Australian Sudoku Hall of Fame. <laughs> And um, I was very humbled to be picked in that, Tim. I was mm. quite surprised. I got, I got picked in that. And then I thought what I'm going to do now is, because there was all the stuff about Justin Langer and, 
and things going on and Dennis Lee, I thought I'd like to elevate myself to legend status within the Australian Sudoku Hall of Fame. So that's probably the next step and then we'll we'll probably pick an Australian team of the century yeah. as well. So I don't know if I make the team, but I'm I'm pretty confident about the legend status, which yeah. should be a wonder. Is that I a think committee of one picking that? At or? this stage, it's a committee of one, yeah. And um, although I spoke to John Eels about it the other day, we, we did have a meeting and and because I, I needed to get endorsed by it. And he said he would endorse me for legend status if I elevated him to Hall of Fame status. Right. So I'd be. I, I think that's a pretty small price to pay, and I think John deserves to be elevated. So I think that's Absolutely. probably the way that it's going to go. Yeah, not just for his um, rugby. Yeah, exploits. Yeah, for his Sudoku as well, which exactly. I think he's more proud of. To yeah. be honest, but now let's leave Sudoku to one side because we've probably talked more about Sudoku than most people have spent actually doing Sudoku. Yep. <laughs> Me included. <laughs> you included, <laughs> even even despite uh, being at a World Championships. You're a published author as well uh, many times over. Your most recent book, uh, you were drawn to telling the stories of these courageous Australian athletes. Were you in part inspired by yourself? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. But I, yeah, so I, I like I like stories and I like I like true stories and yeah. and that was just something that that had been in my head for um I reckon probably more than ten years the thought of of writing that book and I, I mean I come up with a lot of ideas some I follow through like the Sudoku others just sit and percolate and that was one that that just bubbled away and I, I just thought I would actually and one of the guys that I did was a guy called John Sattler who was a, a rugby league player and he played the nineteen seventy rugby league grand final with a broken jaw that got broken in the first three minutes of the game. Yeah. And I knew he was getting – I mean, he'd, he'd be up near 80 by now, and I knew that he was one that I definitely wanted. Because as a kid growing up in Sydney, I never saw him play, but it was one of those stories you grow up as a kid hearing about. So I knew I knew this story, this legendary story of this John Sattler, and I knew that I wanted to get him before he, he got too old and, and got crook or, or passed away. So – that was sort of the motivation to to make me start doing it because I wanted to get him before he got too old. And the original inspiration was Gillian Rolton, who fell off a horse in the '96 Olympics. And 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 again, I said I came from Sydney. I was living in Claremont with some mates, Skiffo being one of them. And I heard that this lady had fallen off a horse called Peppermint Grove, which was the suburb just around it. And that, that mm. it all seemed a bit odd. And then I found out what she'd done: fell off, broke a collarbone, broke a rib, got back on the horse, fell off again, and then had to ride another three Ks, jumping 15 jumps with these injuries to, to make sure Australia stayed in the hunt for a medal. And, and and sort of hearing stories like that and then knowing John's, I thought it'd be great to actually pick, you know, a top 12 of people that have either got an injury and, and played on or overcome an injury to get back to playing again. And and that was, um, again, as a sports fan, to be able to sit in one-on-one and listen to these people tell their story, uh, was um, that was a real privilege for me and something that I enjoyed. And I wrote it not knowing if it would be published, but I thought even if it doesn't get published, I've had the pleasure of sitting one-on-one with people that I've always looked up to yeah. just to hear their story. And I got I got lucky and it did get published, so that was great. But the process for me was the was the nice part. The being published was the bonus, but just yeah, sitting and hearing their stories and then and then being able to share those stories because a lot of people don't know I mean, you know, I, I did Dermot Barrett and Dipper, who a lot of people in WA would know from the 89 grand final. But yeah. some of the other stories, um, like Steve Bradby, who we've seen a lot of at the Olympics, um, who ended up, you know, cut his leg open and he bled out in the ice. Then he broke his neck later on. And, and Lisa Camplin, who was jumping on broken ankles. A lot of these stories that people don't know, and they read these stories, 
and they think, wow, how did I not know about that? So yeah. it's been nice to be able to, to, to as, a, as someone who likes stories, to be able to actually tell their stories and, and let people know what they've done. Because it, it, I still, I read the book again for the first time the other day. I'd never actually read it start to finish. I'd only read the chapters as I wrote them. And, and I, I, you know, even I was sitting there thinking, wow, that's, even though I knew it, I still thought that's amazing. Mm. When you reached out to these people, was it a, a pretty easy sell to get them on board to be a part of your book? Well, some were. So I'd, I'd got like I'd so I knew um, Alyssa Camplin and Steve Bradbury and Anna Mears through speaking because I've, I've done a yep. this, the mobile I'm with there with, and we've met each other at various functions. And so I, I, I kind of we knew each other, which was good. And then I remember um, Rick McCosker who broke his jaw in the 1977 centenary test, which was another one of those famous, you know, walked out with just a bandage around his jaw. And I rang a mate and said, how do you, how can I get hold of Rick McCosker? And he said, oh, mate, just look him up in the phone book. Because <laughs> so, that's how I used to do it when I was a kid. Yeah. And so he said, mate, just look him up. So I've, I've looked up um, McCosker and, and his name was in the phone book. So I've just rang oh, him up. in the old white pages? The old white pages. Really? And this is this is only a couple of years ago. He's in wow. Newcastle in, um, in New South Wales. So I just rang him up and explained what I wanted to do and, and he said, oh, look, he doesn't think he deserves to be in the book, but if, if I want to, you know, have a chat to him, he's happy to do that. So that was good. And then and then Dean Jones, I got um, through a mate of a mate, rang Dean and said, do you mind if Mick rings? And Dean said, yeah, that's fine. So I rang him. And, and once I sort of said to Dean that I, I think kids today are a little bit soft and, and I think it would be great for them to read some stories about people that have overcome some stuff, he jumped right on board that. I bet he did. Because he just – because he was well, – bless his soul – was very old school. Yeah. And just love the thought of being able to say that, you know, kids today are a bit soft and, and to tell the story about what he went through and what he thinks more kids who want to play sport should be willing to put themselves through to get to that elite level as opposed to just get this easy ride where they don't have to train too hard or they get mollycoddled. So he yeah. he, he really bought what I was what I was trying to do, yeah. Mm. So most of them were, were all pretty welcoming. And it's funny, some – so Dermot – I met Dermot on a train – I jumped on this train from Adelaide to Perth because each year the India Pacific does that um, that stopover. They stop at all the country towns and, yep. and they have an act on board and Guy Sebastian was on it. And somehow I ended up on this train and Dermot was on it. <laughs> and, I, and and we got on quite well there. So I, I had his number. So it took a long time to get hold of him. And when I got there, he said, oh, look, I've got to leave in half an hour. And I thought, okay, great. But then once we started talking, like he sent his partner away after half an hour and he stayed talking because I think, I think they enjoy... Because it wasn't just about you know a game. It was I went through his whole life. He was talking about his old man, his brothers, and growing up in Melbourne. And I think he really enjoyed being able to tell a full story yeah. for a change. So yep. it was, yeah. So everyone was very willing, and then everyone was incredibly generous with their time. So yep. you know, I I walked into each each interview, you know, like a little kid in a candy shop, and and walked out just as excited as I was when I walked in because they were just great people to be with and to, to chat to. Were there any that you reached out to who said no? There were want... there were a couple, yeah. yeah. And I think a couple... Can you say who? Um, I won't. I won't. <laughs> but I think I think some of them had their own books coming out right. and didn't want to be um, trumped by me. And and then and one um, who who wouldn't, and I don't know why he didn't, but just said no, just, just didn't, didn't, didn't want, want the publicity. Didn't want to do it, yeah. And actually yeah. one guy, an AFL player... And he said that the incident that I was going to write about, he said he's just trying to forget about that incident. Yeah. So fair I enough. Thought, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So, it was, uh, so, but the but the ones I got, I wouldn't have swapped. The ones I've got, I'm really I'm really happy with the ones that I got. Yeah. People. All incredible stories in yeah, their own right. Phenomenal. Before we go to a break, give it a quick plug. Yeah. So it's called Australia's Toughest Sports People by a, a firm press. 
available wherever you buy a book and also online. Just Google Australia's toughest sports people. Great little read. Nice and easy to read. Short chapters. So it's um, but it's good. Not so many big words, Mick. No, and you can put it down, <laughs> and you can do a chapter and put it down and come back in a month, and you don't have to worry about that chapter. You can start the new chapter. Whereas yeah. when I read a novel. I put it down. I got to start at the beginning because I've forgotten what I've read. So this book and then is... go and see if there's a movie about it. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. or one of those little short study guides to make yeah, it a bit quicker. Exactly. Um, we'll talk about your poetry as well. Prolific poet, uh, and your poetry's been on the airwaves of radio stations around the country. It's been written. It's been lauded by uh, people who know about such things uh, all around the country. So I'm, I'm not going to put you on the spot and get you to come good. up with some on the spot. Oh, good. Thank you. Um, but uh, we'll talk about it anyway, right. right after we take a break. Mick Collis is our special guest. This is Inspiring Stories. Back with more in just a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest in this episode is Mick Collis. We've been trying to get through as many of his extraordinary achievements throughout his life as we can uh, in this hour. Uh, and have, towards... have we come across any yet? Have we hit any? Look, I, I, I'm still fishing. I'm going to land one soon. Yeah. <laughs> Your poetry, though, it's obviously a passion of yours and uh, it's been very well received and widely published. Uh, your your poetry, Mick. Yeah, it's, which is bizarre because um, I didn't particularly like it as a kid growing up. But I, yeah. but I always I can remember English classes at school when you know I didn't understand say, it. Oh, let's let's do and there'd be a collective groan. Yeah, and they yeah. they try and find all this meaning out of stuff that yeah I didn't see. So if I if I talk about a black dog, I'm talking about a Labrador. I'm right. I'm not talking about yeah. something else. So and a lot of stuff that I read as a kid. It was all this hidden meaning that I, and metaphors that I, yeah, I didn't understand. To, yeah, yeah. So the stuff that I write, I, I, I don't know if they're poems. I call them stories that rhyme, mm. and and I guess that's that's my style of poetry. Yeah. And I, I write about stuff that I understand. It's so nothing it, cryptic. No. So it's all it's all pretty basic, and um and look, people people seem to like it, which is great. And I remember I I did one at a rugby function here in Perth, um, one called my, it was called The Ultimate Test, which is about a, a young kid who wanted to play for Australia, strange theme that Sounds runs through a lot of my work, and it ended up being on the battlefield, not the sporting field. So it was a letter to his dad written from the trenches, and, and Peter Fitzsimons, who's a very well-known author, was at that lunch, and, and he liked it and tracked me down afterwards and ran it in the Sydney Morning Herald. And I thought, well, if Fitzy likes it, maybe there's something that I'm doing that that might be okay. And then yep. I remember the West Coast Eagles asked me to write one when Glenn Jakovic did his 250th uh, game. Mm-hmm. So I wrote one, I wrote two about him, which I read or recited at the like the lunches that they do before the games. And, and I thought, oh, they're doing it. Then the Western Force came on board. So I started doing some some rugby ones, which is the sport that's closest to my heart. And sort of as I did a few more and, and the word got out that I did it, then I got asked to do one for... Um, I did some corporations, one for McDonald's, one for Ronald McDonald House, which which was a nice one to do. And then I got asked to do one for Tennis Australia and they actually got me to write it about um, a player because they, they do like a Legends lunch each year. Yeah. So they asked me to write one about this this particular player and then they were going to fly me across to, um, to Melbourne to recite it at, at this big dinner. And the way I started it was all about um, the pioneers of the game and they thought they loved that so they said could you write a separate one using the first part of the long poem about the pioneers so I've written the sort of took the chunk out of that and, and wrote that as a, a self-contained piece 
and they flew me across because they were going to get me to stand on Rod Laver Arena yeah. and have all the legends of the game. So Martin and Navrat Lover and um, Ken Rosewall and Lou Hode and Billie Jean King and all these wow. greats standing behind me as I, as I read this poem. So they flew me across to Melbourne. I'm sitting upstairs, you know, waiting for my, my big moment. And the game before, which the reason I don't like tennis, it, just, <laughs> it wouldn't end. It wouldn't end. So it's in the fifth set and it's at, you know, 18. And they've come in and said, look, Mick, sorry, the game's gone too long. We, we haven't got time. Oh, no. So, so they've sent me home and then they've rang me up on the Wednesday and said, look, we've got time tomorrow night. Can you get over? So I've flown back across to Melbourne and stood on Rod Laver Arena with all those people behind me and I, and I did this ode to the pioneers of tennis. And that was, um, and I've walked off, and then they've all come past and shook my hand and said, "Oh, that was great." And it, like it was all the, the big names of tennis, and that was again as a sports fan, for me to be able to write a poem and then be shaking hands with all these great people who liked what I did after standing on Rod Laver Arena, Centre Court. Um, that was a nice thing to come out of a poem. It was that's quite bizarre. Yeah. That's magnificent. Yeah, it was great. It was and lovely. It was... Look, you know, some of the rest of our conversation has been a little tongue in cheek, hasn't it? But this is a, that's a genuine moment. Yeah, it, it really was. It was um, just a very, very nice, nice thing to do, and to be recognised by those people who are, you know, like the rest of the world admires these people. And I remember when I was going over there, I watched there was a movie that came out um, about Billie Jean King. It was a tennis movie that came out a couple of years ago. I don't know what it's called now. Yeah, I know the one. It's got Steve Carell in it, and um, yeah, I, I can picture it. Yeah, and Margaret yeah. Margaret Court, Margaret Court all that in it. Yep. stuff. And yep. I, I watched that on the plane on the way over. Battle of the Sexes. That was it. Battle of the Sexes. Yeah. And I, and I'm thinking, wow, I'm gonna I'm gonna meet all these people. That, yeah. and, and I did, and it was um, and it was fantastic. And I did another one, a rugby one, because in rugby you got backs and forwards that they in the same team, but they they need each other, but there's a, a real love hate relationship. So I wrote one about called My Sons Are Back about a rugby forward who didn't want his son to grow up to become a back. And I did that at a rugby lunch that Peter Fitzsimons asked me to go to. And uh, it got filmed. That that sort of, I hate the word, went viral, but it, it got distributed around the world. And um, and I've had people emailing me because someone from England or Ireland or France has sent that to them saying, have you seen this poem? And they've gone back saying, yeah, it's a mate of mine that wrote it. So it's kind of nice when, it's nice when people you know say it's good, but it's even nice when people you've never met and you never will met are taking the time to send that to someone who by chance knows me mm. to say that this guy sent me this poem not knowing that I know you to say how much they loved it. So that mm. it's um it's I don't get you know, I didn't get paid to to write that one. It was just something I wanted to write. So it's a nice little bit of, you know, ego stroking from, from people to say that they like what you do. And you know, any any creative pursuit you kind of you put yourself out there People might like it or they might hate it, so it's always nice when you get one that people yeah. actually think, yeah, mate, that was great. Absolutely. Um, we've been talking a lot about all these things that you do on the side. Mm. What's your day job, Mick? And, <laughs> and do you get bored at work? <laughs> no, so and I've never been able to just do one thing. I've always um, liked – I've just liked – I think I get – I think I do get – I get bored, but I get easily distracted. Yeah. So I, I work as a as a writer for an advertising company called Cooch Creative, just yeah. here in Perth, and basically we do writing, strategy, and video. That's that's we do everything that any ad agency does, but that's the main things we do. Mm -hmm. And that's it's as a as a creative, I think my brain likes doing different things. So that that has been my main job. But but we had a few tough years, and the speaking. I started speaking, telling the Sudoku story, so I was able to combine that with the advertising, and then I do a bit of the commentary, which I can work around. So I, I kind of, 
I, I'm the jack of all trades, master of none is the classic description for me because I'm not great at any of those things that I do, but I do okay <laughs> at them and I get a lot of pleasure from them. So I don't, I don't want to stop doing one. I don't want to, I don't want to put too much of an effort into one because if it means stopping doing something else. I probably yeah. should have because I think I could have been more <laughs> successful if I just concentrated on one thing as opposed to dabbling in that and then dabbling in something else and, and then thinking oh, I might try that and dabbling in that while I'm trying to juggle doing other things as well. But but I've had a lot of fun doing those things so I, I probably – I don't think I'd swap it. I think I'd probably do what I'd done if I had the time again. Even so, though it's tempting to think if I had have just done one thing, could I have been any good at that? But look, I'll never know. Look, you've represented your country. Exactly. So and 89th in the world. is complete. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's bubbling away in the noggin at the moment? What, what's on the horizon? Well, the, the next thing we're, we're trying to do is, is the movie, the Sudoku movie. So, the, so you're serious that the, the Sudoku movie is a thing? Yeah, yes. Yeah, so right. There's a production company. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure. I would lie to you. <laughs> so there's a production company in Sydney have teamed, really? up, have teamed up with Madman to, um, to, to do this feature film. So I've been uh, writing the script with a, a mate of mine. And uh, we basically finished the script. So I had a text from the producer this morning. They're just meeting with Madman. They just need to get the sign off and then they'll go out and find a director and then the director will cast it and then uh, hopefully go into production. It could still fall over because films take yep. a long time. There's a lot of things that need to fall in place. But at the moment, um, they're very keen to to make this film. And if I could walk down the red carpet and see a film about my mates, that would be one of the great nights of my life. And what an ending to an extraordinary tale. It, it would be. It, it really would be. And we just thought, I think I ended up, because I sold the rights, because I wrote a book, that Full Contact Sudoku, about the the whole Sudoku thing. Yeah. And I sold the rights uh, for that book to the production company. I think I got $10 for that, which I don't know if that was a good deal or not. But I think I worked out if if the film went to production, I think I'd, I'd get 50 grand or whatever it might be when they they roll the rights over. I don't know what the technical term is. But yeah. I thought the government will take 24 grand in tax, so I thought I'd get 26 <laughs> grand. So I said, there's four of us in the team, and I, I'd done nothing more at that point in time to get that money. So I said to the guys, I can give each of us six and a half grand to put in our mortgage, or I said, we can hold the premiere in Sydney, we'll have a red carpet event, We'll rent a penthouse apartment overlooking Circular Quay. We'll have a massive premiere, a massive party, and drop twenty six grand on the weekend. They've all gone. You yeah. reckon you're going to get all that for twenty six yeah. grand? And they said, yeah, Sydney, let's, let's do that." You're so, dreaming, yeah. mate. No, I'll get you're dreaming. There'll be some people that I'm sure we can call some favours from. So, yeah. so the boys just said, "Yeah, let's drop all the money on a party." So yeah. that's that. That'll be the plan for the film. But I'd love it to come off because it'd be great fun. They'll shoot it here in Perth. Yeah. And I got oh friends of mine. Um, I said to the producers, "If we need a day, like at the OBH." where we need extras, can I supply the extras? And they went, yep. So I yeah. judged ring people and said, look, we're putting on some beers, come down to the ABH, bring extra in a film. It'd be great fun. Well, look, the government's spending all this I money know. on production There's studios exactly. here. What a way. What a way to kick it all to off. To debut those studios. Yeah, very much so. Incredible. Yeah. We can only hope and pray that That's that happens. That's the plan. But Mick, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story. It's been, <laughs> it's been as entertaining as it has been inspiring. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> thank you very much. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us next time as we unearth another inspiring story. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Life's busy. Take this deck. There's heaps to do on it, like um, polishing off this wine. That's tough. Life's pretty good with a Trex deck. Composite decking with no hard maintenance. Trex, the world's number one decking brand.